been studying 1 John all year, so it's only fitting that when we approach the story of the resurrection, we look at the disciple John's account of the resurrection. Of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have their own accounts of the resurrection, different emphases and different themes, but one overarching truth remains the same throughout all four gospel accounts, and that is that Jesus has been risen from the dead. As we begin our time together this morning, just at a very foundational level, 1 Corinthians 15 describes historically what we believe as a church, not just our church, but what the Christian church in general believes about the resurrection. Here's what Paul tells us. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. So while we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus today, and rightly so, because it is Easter, we want to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ every single day that God gives us. There is not a more transformational event in the history of the world than the resurrection of Jesus. Because it validates that Jesus' death was sufficient as the punishment and payment for the sins of all of those who repent And believe in faith in Christ Jesus. So this morning, as we work our way through John's account of the resurrection, I want you to leave knowing two things today. Number one, the hopelessness and confusion without a Savior. And number two, the hope and certainty with a Savior. So number one, the hopelessness and confusion without a Savior but the hope and certainty with a Savior. As we walk through this passage, Mary Magdalene arrives at Jesus' tomb on Sunday. We're told that it's still dark when she arrives. Now, John's gospel is full of symbolism. And one of the main symbols that he uses throughout his gospel is the contrast between light and dark. He says in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is supposed to be talking about Jesus. He is the one who is light. But from Mary's perspective, when she approaches the tomb on this Sunday morning, she is in darkness because she thinks he's dead. Mary doesn't go to the tomb that morning anticipating that Jesus was raised from the dead. As you read all of the gospel accounts, Jesus shares with his followers during his earthly ministry the fact that he was going to die and be resurrected. If you look at all of the different accounts, it's in Matthew 16, it's in Matthew 17, it's in Matthew 20, it's in Mark 8, it's in Mark 9, it's in Mark 10, it's in Luke 9, it's in Luke 18. So throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he is trying to teach his followers, I am going to die, but three days later I'll be resurrected. 
And yet, as Mary Magdalene, one of his followers, approaches the tomb, she is coming to weep and mourn the loss of her master. She is not thinking clearly what Jesus had told her so many times before. Why is that? Because she's still living in darkness, in hopelessness, and in confusion. She notices that the tomb was rolled away, and she runs to tell Peter and John what had happened. Even her response gives no indication that she believed at this point that Jesus had been risen from the dead. Look at what she says. She says, they have taken the Lord, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So what is Mary thinking about at this moment? She is thinking that Jesus' body has been stolen. It has been taken out of the grave. In her defense, the robbing of graves was a very common practice in first century Rome. In fact, it became so popular that an emperor, Claudius, began to actually punish people via capital punishment for those that went to rob graves. So this hopelessness and confusion that Mary feels in this moment is transferred on to Peter and John when she arrives to give them the news. And we're told that both disciples run to the tomb. But I don't think either Peter or John at this moment were running to the tomb to celebrate the fact that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. No, they were thinking most likely the exact same thing that Mary was thinking. That Jesus' body had been stolen. On a funny note, by the way, You notice who gets credit for arriving at the tomb of Jesus first. It's almost as if John wants the whole world and the whole church throughout the history of time to know that even though Peter might be the rock upon which Christ built his church, John is faster. (laughs) Now, this is a little bit of creativity on my part. But nevertheless, we do know that each Gospel writer brings his own creativity and brings his own perspective to the gospel account. So it does seem that John wants us to know, I'm faster than Peter. And John stoops to look in, the text tells us. And he sees the clothes, but he doesn't go all the way in. He simply stoops in. And it should come as no surprise to us, if you know your New Testament, that Peter would be the one who actually barges in, just like we would expect him to do. He also sees the cloths and the the face cloth that Jesus wore that was neatly folded up, John tells us. And we're beginning to see some hints as John outlines this narrative for us that perhaps Jesus' body wasn't actually stolen by thieves. Because no thief would take the time to ensure that the clothes were neatly and properly folded up before they would take a body out. In the same way that if someone came and robbed your house, I seriously doubt they're going to vacuum and make all of the beds prior to them leaving. Something else is going on here. And John is slowly revealing the truth of this passage. You should also notice... If you know the Gospel of John, a difference between the resurrection of Lazarus, which John records for us in John 11, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
there are some significant differences, and they're intentional. For instance, in the story of Lazarus, we're told that Lazarus was dead for four days and that his body stunk really, really bad. Jesus was dead for three days, and we're told that because of the spices and the perfumes, that his body did not smell the same as Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead by someone else. Jesus raised himself. Lazarus came out bound up, but Jesus comes out of the tomb unbound. Others took away the stone of Lazarus. Jesus, it would seem, pushed his own stone away. The differences between these two accounts of the resurrection, one of Lazarus and one of Jesus... The differences are to point us to the fact that Jesus' resurrection is unlike anything that anyone had ever seen before. Lazarus' resurrection, as impressive as it was, is not the same as Jesus's. I'm going to skip verse 8 and come back to it in a moment. But John communicates in verse 9 that so much of the resurrection was still not making sense to Peter and John. Even though they would have received all of this teaching from Jesus that this was in fact going to happen to them, the light bulb doesn't seem to be going off in their minds. In fact, in verse 10, all it says is the disciples went back to their homes. So they went home. Now we can infer that more than likely they went home and they were telling people what had happened But I don't think it was any type of grand proclamation that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. It was probably simply reporting the facts about what they had seen with their own eyes. And the narrative shifts at this point away from Peter and John onto Mary. We're told in verse 11 that she's weeping at the tomb. Because in her mind, she's trying to figure out Who would be so cruel and evil as to take the body of her Lord? Look at what she says in verse 13. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Even with two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, she's still thinking in terms of someone having come and stolen Jesus' body. And if you're still not convinced at how clueless Mary Magdalene is at this point, look at verses 14 to 16. It reads, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, that's John telling us this, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. You still see that she is still thinking at this moment that Jesus' body has been stolen. She's not thinking in terms of resurrection. Now, what's interesting about Jesus' resurrected body, as you read the various gospel accounts, even though Jesus' resurrected body can be touched, It bears the marks of the wounds in his hands. He can eat because we know he ate fish with the disciples. At the same time, even though his resurrected body gives us clues of his humanity, he's also able to appear in the middle of a locked room 
And he's often not recognized immediately by his followers. For example, here, but also in Luke 24, in the road to Emmaus, as the disciples are walking along with Jesus, and they are completely clueless that it's Jesus that they're walking next to. The descriptions that we have thus far in this story from Peter and John and Mary Magdalene show us that all three of these followers are still living in confusion and hopelessness without a Savior. Now, I know what you're thinking. Many of us in this room have lots of friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors who don't care about Jesus at all. They don't think about his death or his resurrection, and they don't appear to be hopeless or confused at all, not knowing Jesus. What we're not saying is that someone who is completely secular or quasi-religious or even a nominal Christian cannot be happy apart from faith in Christ. That is not what we're teaching. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's a fact that you can find meaning and happiness in life in lots of things besides Jesus. But Christianity provides unequal resources for finding meaning, identity, and satisfaction. For instance, many of you know people who sell their lives to their career. And they find great satisfaction in their jobs. And that's a good thing. God designed for us to work. But what happens when that job goes away? When that can no longer become your identity? If you find meaning in your spouse or in your children, again, a good design by God. But if it's your ultimate satisfaction and meaning in life, what happens when that spouse or that child is taken from you? If you find your identity in your morality, in being a good person, outside of the objective truth of God's word, morality changes with the whims of the culture. What was once considered unheard of is now often celebrated in our day. So there is no objective truth grounded in the culture's understanding of what is right and wrong. Some of you might have seen the deeply theological Disney movie, Cool Runnings. And in that movie, it was actually the last movie that John Candy filmed before he passed away from a heart attack. The movie is based on the true story of the Jamaican bobsled team who entered into the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary. And John Candy is the coach of this bobsled team. He himself was a famous bobsledder for the American team, but eventually he was disgraced for cheating, and he had been banned from the sport. And so the captain of the Jamaican bobsled team, a man by the name of Doris Banner, asked John Candy, in a way to kind of help resurrect his career, to come and coach the very first Jamaican bobsled team. And after a shaky start... The Jamaicans have a chance to medal in the 1998, 1988 Winter Olympics. And the night before the final race, 
Derice Banner, the captain of the Jamaican bobsled team, sitting on the ground in his hotel room, and John Candy walks in and says, do you want to go get a bite to eat with us? And Derice says no, and he said, but coach, I have a question for you, and if you don't want to answer it, I understand why. And Banner's question to his coach was, why did you choose to cheat? Why did you choose to disgrace yourself and your country? Here's the response directly from the movie. John Candy responds and he said, I had to win. You see, I'd made winning my whole life. And when you make winning your whole life, you have to keep on winning no matter what. Do you understand that? Do you see the point of what John Candy is trying to communicate? If your family is your whole life, you have to always have your family with you to find meaning and satisfaction. If your career is your whole life, if you no longer work, you lose that identity. You lose that satisfaction. If morality is your whole life, you have to keep on getting better and better through your own effort. And I hate to tell you this, but there's always going to be somebody out there who's a better person than you. Always. Christian or non-Christian, there's always someone out there who's going to be a better person than you are. And you'll feel defeated every time you fall short of whatever that standard is you set for yourself. That's no way to live your life. There's no way to find complete meaning, identity, and satisfaction in anything that this world has to offer. But the gospel, in contrast, offers something so much better. Number two, we see it in the text. The hope and certainty with a Savior. Look at verse 8. We're told that John also went in and he saw and believed. Now scholars and commentators are divided on this. Are we supposed to believe that John simply believed in the report that Mary Magdalene gave to him? Are we supposed to believe that actually at this moment, his heart is beginning to change and he realizes that Jesus had in fact been raised from the dead? I think actually that John believes in this moment that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He was able to view it with his own eyes. In fact, if you follow the context of the rest of this chapter, in verse 29... John records this when Jesus is talking to Thomas. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. You see, most of the early witnesses came to faith in Christ because they saw Jesus' resurrected body. Look at 1 John 1.1 as we've been working through this epistle all year. The very first verse of that epistle, John highlights this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see, I believe in the resurrection because I believe that the apostles who were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote down what they saw and since God in his nature is completely truthful, I believe it to be true. None of you in this room ever saw Jesus 
alive. You never touched him. You have never heard him audibly talk to you, more than likely. Therefore, you are believing in faith. You are believing in the message passed down from the apostles to the first church. And that church continued to propagate the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. So, verse 29 of this chapter. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That would be every single one in this room who is a follower of Jesus. Because none of us were privy to see the resurrection of Jesus. No, we believe it based on the testimony of literally thousands and thousands and thousands, perhaps millions of Christians throughout the course of history that loved their neighbors and their family members and their co-workers enough to sit down with them and say, what I believe about Jesus is not just some fairy tale. This is objective truth. Mary, even as she walks away from the tomb, is not convinced. She even looks at Jesus and believes him to be a gardener until Jesus calls her name. This is significant. And it ties into John's whole purpose in constructing his gospel. If you go back to John chapter 10, this is what it says. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. As soon as Jesus calls Mary by name, she recognizes her shepherd. She recognizes the one who she had walked with and talked with for this three-year ministry that Jesus had. Now, we're not given a lot of detail in this text. But I think that as soon as Mary heard her name called, she believed definitively in that moment that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. John doesn't give us any indication here that she did any type of double take or that she went through this period of examining him closer. It seems that as soon as Jesus called her name, she believed on the spot. As soon as she heard his voice. Now, Jesus' response to Mary in this passage seems a little unusual at face value. She's rejoicing that her master and her savior is alive, and he says, do not cling to me. That's probably not what she was hoping to hear in that moment. Now, why would Jesus say that? In Mary's mind, she's thinking that the ascension where Jesus will return to heaven could happen in any possible second. So she does not want to let go of him. But of course, Jesus knows, and we know, that Jesus was going to spend 40 days with his followers after his resurrection, continuing to teach them and pray with them and warn them about the helper, his spirit, that would come later after he ascended. And don't miss, in verse 17, the significance of the pronouns. 
Jesus does not say, my Father and my God. He says, your Father and your God. Mary Magdalene and the other followers of Jesus are now co-heirs with Christ. Because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and future ascension at this moment, all of those who repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ are reconciled to God, and we are co-heirs with the king of the universe. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Mary Magdalene obeys Jesus' words and she announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She now has hope. She now has certainty that the resurrection of Jesus is legitimate. Mary's words alone are powerful enough. But when you add in that all of the gospel accounts, every single one of them, have women as the first people to arrive at the tomb, do not miss the significance of this. Jesus is saying in this moment, all of the gospel writers are communicating to us that by having women appear at the tomb first, in a day and age when women had very little to offer to society outside of having children, The gospel writers are telling us in this moment when Mary Magdalene and the others show up and they see the resurrected Jesus first. The message to us is things are different now. Jesus has changed the way we understand everything. And Paul illustrates this so perfectly when he says there is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Socioeconomic background, the color of your skin, male or female, slave or free, we all approach approach Jesus Christ. Sinners destined for hell apart from the work of regeneration which His Spirit does in us. So it's only fitting that we take the same phrase that Mary used when she said, I have seen the Lord, and we flip it now into a question. Have you seen the Lord? Obviously, none of us were present for the resurrection of Jesus. But have you experienced the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that can only be found through Jesus? You will not find love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness in your career. You will not find love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness in your family. You will not find it in your money. You will not find it in your stuff. You can only find the love, grace, forgiveness, and mercy that you need to be made right with God through Jesus Christ. That is a fact. Tim Keller says this, The gospel is this, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever 
dared hope. The response to the death and resurrection of Jesus is to repent of your sin, place your faith in Christ alone for salvation. I didn't finish the story from Cool Runnings. Because after Darius gets the answer that he cheated because he had to win, Darius responds to John Candy and says, I don't understand, coach. You had two gold medals. You had it all. Candy's response is, Darius, a gold medal is a wonderful thing, but if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. Here's the message of the gospel. You're never enough without Jesus. Spiritually speaking, you will never be enough without Jesus. Your morality, your career, your family, whatever you want to put as the top priority in your life, if it's not Jesus, you will never be enough. Thankfully, Jesus offers himself a willingness to die for our sins. And when we reorient our lives away from the things of this world, suddenly our identity, our meaning, our satisfaction, they all can be found in who Jesus says that we are. A sinner, forgiven, experiencing the grace and mercy of Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus in me shapes everything about my life. It shapes my identity. No family member, no job, no possession can ever change the fact that God loves me. So even if all of those things go south, Because God demonstrated his love in the sending of Jesus. No matter what happens in this world, I can have full identity, full confidence, knowing that Jesus loves me. So, have you seen the Lord? Have you turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the report that John gives to us in his account of the resurrection. And it causes all of us to ponder in our own hearts and minds whether or not we have seen Jesus. Not visibly with our eyes, but have we experienced salvation through repenting of sins and placing our faith in Christ alone. For those that have, we want to celebrate and give you praise for the work of salvation that you have done. For those that have not, I pray that the seed that has been planted through the proclamation of this word, that you would take that seed and water it. And whether it be today or another time, that someone would respond in repentance and faith. And move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Through your son, Jesus Christ. 
We ask all of these things in his name. Amen.